you can't be a high performance culture if you haven't got a good leader and you haven't got vision, understanding, clarity and agility, which is the VUCA prime state. So what we want people to do is to focus on managing themselves because when they manage themselves well, they can manage a team more effectively. And that's one of the other areas that can go really wrong is the wheels start to come off the team. They start burning out, they start leaving, they become disengaged, they start stop contributing, they start making mistakes because they're tired as well and it becomes a spiral of death. Welcome to Management Development Unlocked, where you will learn how to nurture a world-class management team. And now your host, Eric Gerard. Welcome to another episode of Management Development Unlocked. I am really glad you're here. While you still have your device in your hand, I'd like to ask three favors. Number one, please subscribe to the show. Two, please share the show with just one other person. And three, go to GerardTrainingSolutions.com and download my free ebook on becoming a manager. Today, I have Jimmy Burroughs with me. Jimmy, welcome to the show. Who are you and what do you do? Thanks, Eric. Thanks for the invitation. Who am I? That's a really complicated question to answer. I'll try and give a short answer. I essentially am a consultant and leadership executive advisor who works with organizations to help them build high-performance cultures. We do that through what I would call the human side of development, and predominantly it boils down to three things, which is helping leaders to build trust, connection, and clarity of purpose with their teams. So that's my job. Who am I really? I am a nomadic globetrotter who has spent the last 40-something years on a journey of exploration. I'm a learner, I'm a reader, I'm a scuba diver, I'm a runner, I'm an adventurer, and I am genuinely filled with the joy of life that happens when you learn a new thing and you grow and develop as a person. That is what drives me. And so I'm lucky enough to have found a career that allows me to do that. Uh, and I'm happily based out of a home base in Mexico, but I have, I've been to now 69 countries. I'm trying to get number 70. I've been trying for a while. But you'll find when you get to 69 countries that the easy ones have been done and it's the harder ones that you've got left to do. So uh, the goal is to get to number 70 at some point in the near future. Uh, so it's a little bit about me anyway. Well, that is that is quite a background. And I noticed you left out your military experience. So there's a, there's a whole story there, I'm sure. More adventures, yep. <laughs> yeah. As you and I have discussed, and as my listeners know, I am a scuba instructor and am striving toward becoming a master scuba diver tra trainer. Mm -hmm. And my 10-year goal is to be teaching scuba someplace tropical. Oh. I, ideally, to get that done by 2030, I'm a little flexible on the date. But let's take a detour and talk about scuba for just a sec. Where's Please, where's my your, favorite topic. Yeah. So <laughs> where's your favorite dive site? Favorite dive site? That's such a difficult question because there's different sites for different things. I can give you a top couple. So there, I have a really great memory of diving the Yongala, which is a wreck in Australia, just in the Great Barrier Reef. It's, it's one of the places you go and do your deep dive certification. And so you're sort of sitting at 37, 40 meters, something like that. And the reason I always go back to that one is there is a giant grouper which swims around and it's tame and people can interact with it. But there's also quite a proliferation of sea snakes. And I have this, this great memory of sitting on my knees at the bottom of the ocean 
I was a reasonably inexperienced diver back in the day and a sea snake swimming up through the BCD, the, the, the inflatable jacket that people wear underwater, swimming up through the bottom and popping out the top of the jacket and sort of swimming across the mask of one of my fellow divers. And I've never seen such a big set of eyes in my life. So that will always be one of my defining memories. Um, the Blue Hole in Belize is another one I absolutely love. Got myself into a little bit of trouble where we arrived before sunrise, started diving with our, our marker boy and the captain of the boat that arrived after us was chumming the water for his guests. And there was a blue shark feeding frenzy as we tried to get back onto our boat. That was fun. And then probably the other one that I really define as a memory is diving in, in Indonesia, just because the, the diving, the quality of the water, the colors are absolutely incredible. But if, uh, if you're looking for a place to go diving in the Caribbean, I, I would recommend Honduras. The waters of Utila and the surrounding waters of Roatan are absolutely incredible. And I did my instructors in Utila and, my, uh, and I highly recommend it. Which, which dive shop in Utila? Uh, UDC, uh, run by a fantastic friend and mentor, a guy called Josiah Mackin. And it's, yeah, it's an excellent learning center, training center for DMs, instructors, and MSDTs and beyond. I'm hoping yeah. to go and dive to my goal last year and hopefully this year if i can get it to work is to is to go to 100 meters dive to 100 meters wow i used udc's videos to get through my instructor training oh the skill like, circuit <laughs> yeah they're they're famous for their skill circuit like everybody in my um, instructor course was using some you know some version of udc or somebody from utila mm -hmm. and one of one of my colleagues actually got his instructor certification his instructor staff certification in Utila. So oh, fantastic. It, it comes highly recommended. I'm thinking about it pretty hard. Yeah, it's it's a gold star school. I definitely, yeah. Any anybody who's thinking of going down that professional route, they might all that I always steer them that way. Awesome. Well, it's always fun to talk scuba, but but this is <laughs> not sure. a, this is not a scuba show. So <laughs> you, better, you better get back on track. So your focus is on high performance culture. And so I've got a series of questions um, about high-performance culture. And my first question is, what is your version of a high-performance culture? And can you tailor your answers to the new manager and to yeah. somebody who is transitioning into management? 100%. So, you know, I can paint two pictures of two different teams. There is a team that is hitting, you know, nearly 90% of their annual targets. They're going through all the motions of operational performance. They are working sometimes together on tasks. They maybe know a little bit about each other and they are turning over at a, you know, an average rate for the industry as people decide to move on, leave, get promoted or burn out. That would be what I would not call a high performance culture. But unfortunately, that's a probably a, a, a better than average description of many teams that we see in organizations in the modern era. If I then talk about what, what I would define as more of a high performance culture, and you know, particularly with those new leaders in mind, it's a team where people are excited to come to work. And they're excited to come to work because they know exactly what they're going to do that day in terms of why they're doing what they're doing, how they're going to achieve what they're doing. And they know that they've got some support around them. Should they struggle or stumble, that is going to pick them up, dust them off and mentor or coach them back to achieving the great results that they want to. 
They may still only be hitting 90% of targets, but they're doing it filled with joy. They're doing it without having to watch their backs. They're doing it without being worried. And they are focused on the joy of what they do through their own passion, but also building their networks, connecting with people, widening their field, becoming broader, more experienced people, growing and learning through the business. And turnover tends to be lower in these organizations because people actually like working there. So when you talk about how high performance culture can be measured or, you know, how do I do a quick dip my toe in the water test as a newly promoted manager of what's the culture of my team? They're the things I'd be looking for is you know, are people actually excited to come to work? What's the level of clarity in the team? What's the level of ambiguity in the team? How uncertain are people are people scared and watching their own backs and blaming each other and working silos or are they working together, collaborating, connecting and, and filled with a passion for a purpose? You know, I love how you talk about uh, passion and joy as prerequisites for being, you know, a high performance culture. Mm. And I've certainly, I've worked on teams that were passionate and were joyous. I've got lots of great stories from my first job in Silicon Valley where we were just killing it and we loved each other. We had such fun together and, and hung out socially as well as professionally and got a lot of good work done, which was really nice. And I've worked on other teams where it was just a slog every day, every week. It was just a slog. And we weren't there because it was joyous. We, was, we were there because it was a, jo a job, a J-O-B. Mm -hmm. I, I think you're, you're completely right. And you know, just while you were talking, I quickly came up with a framework in my head, which is the passion and performance matrix. And imagine there's you know, two axes on a graph with a window shape in the middle. And there must be some sort of framework that we could we could annotate the different teams that we all work in whether they're high passion high performance high passion low performance low passion high performance and low passion low performance and see which team we fit into and, and understand why um, i'm probably going to jot that down somewhere oh you should definitely write that down <laughs> but since you came up with it on my show i get 10 percent Oh, okay, cool, and, and I'll and I'll uh, I'll promise to send the royalties in your direction. Beautiful. Okay. <laughs> oh man, speaking of royalties, I wrote a book for teens, mm -hmm. and as an experiment, I wrote this book and put it on Amazon. You know, self-published it through Amazon and all of that, and mm -hmm. it 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 didn't sell very well. And my last royalty check, I think, was twenty three cents. So if I get That's more than twenty three cents from you, I will be happy. Yeah, it's amazing what you can earn in passive income, isn't it? Or not, <laughs> as the case may be. <laughs> yeah. Well, continuing on our thread about high-performance culture, why do leaders often get it wrong? That's a great question. And, um, you know, if we think about the new leader who is stepping into maybe their first leadership role or stepping into maybe they've had one go at it, but they move across to another organization or team, often what the challenge can be is letting go of being the high-performing individual or the high-performing individual contributor, as, the, as they're known in some organizations. So you may have been the best sales guy or girl. You may have been the best marketer, the best finance accountant, whatever it was. But when you move into a leadership role, at that level of leadership, when we're talking sort of frontline leader, your job becomes almost a halfway house. You know, it's almost easier for senior leaders because they move very swiftly from being responsible for the work for being responsible for the people who are responsible for the work. But when you're in that kind of new manager role, it tends to be you've got to do some of the tasks, but you've also got to lead the people who do some of the tasks. And that can be a real murky space 
to try and navigate. And, and often what happens is because people believe that they were promoted because of their technical skills, they feel the necessity to continue showing those, those technical skills, but they've also got new responsibilities. So what ends up happening is they just get burned out. They are overcommitted to delivery and they're also trying to commit to learning a new skill of leadership, which is essentially a whole new vocation, and they become stretched thin. And then they might end up in a situation where they don't do either particularly well. And there's that old analogy of chase two rabbits, catch no rabbits. They're trying to do spin too many plates. So that's one of the first things that happens. Second one that happens that we see that leaders often get wrong is they aren't particularly clear on the purpose of their job. So they start meddling and they start playing in other people's playgrounds. So for an example, again, when we talk about the, the junior leader, the purpose of the, the, the leader's role is to suddenly become an interface between more senior leadership and their team. So they're almost like an information conduit that is translating strategy, translating initiatives into a form that their team can implement and operationalize. And then they're taking the feedback in terms of results or KPIs or, or comments or emails, and they're taking those back to their manager. And often what can happen is that new managers either side with the leadership team and they go, well, you guys need to all do this, or you you, know, you team, you, you need, all need to be doing this now because my boss says so, and we have to get that done. So they go downward looking, or they're, so they become the opposite, which is they become, well, I have to protect my team at all costs from the leadership. So my job is to block everything and to and to make sure that you know the we're just you know if I'm hearing grumbles from my team, my job is to take those up and to to make sure that my team's voice is heard. And the reality is, it's both. Your job is to take information and help interpret, but your job is also to take information and help interpret in a bilateral direction. And, and I think that can often be something that that less experienced leaders struggle with because they're not sure on the purpose of their role. That's very insightful. And for some reason, as you were talking, my favorite HBR article, Who's Got the Monkey, popped into my head. Mm -hmm. and, and the whole idea of degrees of freedom or degrees of autonomy that you can give folks and also just kind of being clear on whose problem this thing really is. Mm -hmm. and, and, and making sure that, that we're, we're clear, you know, hey, this is your issue. I'm not going to I'm not going to rescue you versus, OK, it's time for me to step in as the manager. I think there's one other thing that I probably add. It, it just it just came up while I was thinking and I was listening to you. The other common challenge that leaders can have is they they're very insular. So part of your job as a leader is to influence and be a networker and to be out there talking to people and growing relationships and building networks whether that's building a network that you can bring new talent into your team, whether it's building a network to get stuff done in the organization, or whether it's building a network to allow your team to develop and grow through the organization by creating opportunities for them elsewhere. And new leaders, again, one of the mistakes they can make is they just become very fixated on their little island, their little team, their tribe, and they forget that part of the job is to go out there and build more relationships and spend actually probably... I would say more than 50% of your time focused on building and maintaining and growing relationships because that creates opportunities for your team to do their best work. Yeah, excellent. Well, continuing on, on the whole idea of high performance culture and why leaders often get it wrong is 
What's the consequence if a leader gets the whole concept of high-performance culture wrong? They take the wrong action. They, they push too hard or not hard enough. For example, what happens? One of three things normally, and they kind of stack up in terms of importance in my mind. If they first of all get it wrong, there's an impact on them as an individual. So making bad choices. I mean, leadership is about making decisions and making good decisions, ideally. So if you start making poor decisions, the consequence of getting that wrong on you is that your leadership brand starts to become impacted. If you start to feel that leadership brand being impacted by the way others are treating you, others are interacting with you, that can also lead to an erosion of your own self-confidence. So you may suddenly start to feel, am I up to this? Am I failing? Am I messing this up? Now, I think of a, a leader I was talking to last week who is a little bit more senior, and she's taken over a team about nine months ago and has started to get some feedback that her leadership brand is not perfect and she's making some mistakes. And her initial response was, oh my God, I'm failing. I should just quit. And actually that's the moment to double down and, and start listening and learning and to take on some leadership development support from people like me or you who actually help people. But there's a that's the first level of consequence, I would say, is that you start to erode your own brand and you start to undermine your own confidence. The, the next layer up, and I think this is probably more important than you, is your team starts to feel the consequence of you not being a great leader. So when you start to make poor decisions, when you start getting this wrong, you're going to start creating extra work. You start creating what we call vulnerability, uncertainty, concern, and anxiety. So it's what we call the VUCA minus state for your team. And when you start creating those things, of course, performance is going to drop. You can't be a high performance culture if you haven't got a good leader and you haven't got vision, understanding, clarity, and agility, which is the VUCA prime state. So what we want people to do is to focus on managing themselves because when they manage themselves well, they can manage a team more effectively. And that's one of the other areas it can go really wrong is the team start, the wheels start to come off the team. They start burning out, they start leaving, they become disengaged, they start stop contributing, they start making mistakes because they're tired as well, and it becomes a spiral of death. The third and biggest consequence is your team does not deliver for the business. So at the end of the day, as a leader in that business, your job is to deliver for that business whilst protecting and maintaining and looking after your team. So leaders who make poor decisions, they're eroding their own brand, they're eroding their team's brand, but they're also eroding the results, the potential results and the potential upside that that organization can actually achieve. Very insightful. Very interesting stuff you've, you've given me to think about, for sure, and, and the folks who are listening. How do you start? How do you, how do you, get, how do you get rolling with all of this? And, and again, I'm going to put myself in the seat of a new manager somebody who you know may have just been promoted or been promoted within the year and I'm interested in making sure that my team is high performance I, I certainly don't want to do anything to, to mess up my team or mess up my team's performance where do I begin yeah that's a that's a really interesting question and you know I'm gonna lean into the, the what I believe are the three pillars of a high performance culture which is trust connection and clarity of purpose. So we have to start with trust. You can you can network with everybody you like and you can give everybody a very clear purpose on what they should be doing. But if they don't trust you, they're not going to follow you. And trust is, is, is for many organizations, a pretty ethereal concept. Like you intuitively know, I trust you or I don't trust you. 
but most leaders don't know how to build trust. They don't know how to cultivate trust. And so we developed a, uh, a seven-point framework, which is essentially these are the seven levers you can pull that are going to build trust with your team and will move you from, hey, we work in the same team to, oh, actually, I trust you to work on some tasks with me to, oh, actually, we're friends and we know each other and we have an, you know, a relationship with each other down to the deepest level of trust, which is what we call the emotional trust, which is I can talk to you about the mistakes and the things I'm worrying about and my fears and my failures. And so the leader who steps into a new leadership role and says something along the lines of, hey, team, I've got some great ideas for this team, but I know you will also have some great ideas for this team. And I want to understand what you're thinking so I can best support us to move forward. I want your ideas. I want your input. You know, I might be the manager of the team, but it's not you know, I don't feel like it's up to me to come up with all the ideas because many of you are experts in your jobs and I haven't done some of those jobs. So I'm going to need your input. My responsibility is to make the decisions and to take the team forward. I'm asking you to take your responsibility to help me make the best decisions. And there's a, for a lot of leaders that can be, oh my God, I can't, I can't admit that I don't know the answers. I can't admit that I don't have all the solutions. But actually what we see is that only about 47% of leaders ever move past that I'm the expert leader state. So it's they have no, and to go beyond that, to get into that, those next levels of, of capability, those transcendent moments of moving from expert to influencer, you have to be willing to be vulnerable. And so the seven point framework that we have has vulnerability at the center of it. Before we get to vulnerability in the model, we talk about creating an environment of safety, both physical and psychological safety. So it's okay to share your opinions here. It's okay to have uh, to put your hand up and disagree. It's also important that we make sure you feel physically safe while you're in this team. So there'll be many leaders who are listening, I'm sure, who maybe work in a, a factory environment or in a logistics environment or in, in forestry. Now, these are these are industries that have high accident incidences and occurrences. So safety, physical safety is very important in those environments to build trust. Like if my manager is not even looking out for me, they don't care if I'm safe, we're screwed. The E in, in the model, that we, we use the acronym service. So safety, E is around setting clear expectations. So this is what I need from you. This is what you, can we understand what you need from me? Let's work through it. So that helps build trust when we're clear on expectations. Be reliable. Do what you say you're going to do, have the type of conversations that you say you're going to have and be consistent. So, you know, if somebody does something wrong and you pull them up on it and then somebody else does something wrong and they're your favorite, so you don't pull them up on it, well, then you're not being reliable, consistent. So that has a real challenge. V, vulnerability. We talked about that one. So I don't have all the answers. I need your help. I, be inclusive. So actually, there's, there's a beautiful phrase I've heard, which is, um, Diversity is inviting lots of different people to the party. Inclusion is asking them what song they'd like to add to the playlist. And belonging is where they're all dancing together. And so you want people to feel included in your team so they trust you. Like, it's okay for me to be here. I can bring my whole self. I trust this leader. They're not going to belittle me, make me feel stupid, make me, call me out in front of the people for the way I act or dress or my sexuality or my gender or my race or whatever it might be. Incl be inclusive. See clarity. I think that one's reasonably obvious. Make sure everybody's clear on what they're doing. And E is empathy. And this is the reason we leave this one to last is I think because it's, it's kind of like the cream on the cake. But to build trust with people, it can really help if they come to you with a problem and you immediately say, 
you know what? If I was sitting in your shoes, looking through your eyes, I would find that really challenging as well. And you know what? I don't have the answers immediately, but I think that working together, we might have the answers that we can come up with. And that person is immediately going to go, oh my gosh, this person wants to get in next to me, alongside me, and we're going to solve this problem together. I trust this person a little bit more than I did previously. And it's those, we, we call them consistent trust building steps. You have to be of service all the time as a leader. It's not about, I'll do it today and that's enough. It's about, you've got to live and breathe the, those values of service in order to create trust. And that's where you start. I love that. That's a great acronym. And I love your emphasis on empathy. It's something that I personally write and speak a lot about. I, I think that that a new manager, any manager, needs to bring empathy to the game first in order to be able to to understand, really truly understand where the other people that they're leading are coming from so that then they can build trust and start to set goals and so on. But first, if if my team knows I've got their back no matter what, I think that's that's hugely important. So wonderful. Sure. That, yeah, thank you very much. And one of the common mistakes I think, Lee, and you've probably seen this as well, Eric, is that you think that sympathy is empathy and, and that they're not the same thing. So sympathy is when somebody comes to you with a problem and you're like, oh my God, that's so terrible. I feel so bad for you. And I can't, you know, I just, I, I, what a terrible t- situation. What a terrible person for them to speak to you like that. Oh, they're horrible. So that's sympathy when you kind of just get in and moan next to them and you you feel their feelings. Empathy is where you stand in their shoes and you look through their eyes, not stand in their shoes and look through your eyes. You have to look through their eyes and what they're seeing. And then you start talking to them about that. And as a new leader or a relatively inexperienced leader, empathy is not a complicated thing if you just act like a human being. It's like we come to work and we think we've got to put our leader cassette in, oh, I'm sounding very old now, our leader chip <laughs> into our head. And you don't need to, you know, if you were just to go, wow, okay, that sounds tough. I can only imagine how you're feeling, but could you tell me about how you're feeling? And wow, now I understand a little bit more about how you're feeling. What do you think would be some great solutions? You're automatically going from empathy to coaching, which is like actually a pretty complex skill, but it's just about being a human being who's connected and knows their people and has built a little bit of trust in in the trust bank account that means that when they come, they A, are willing to come to you and B, you sit and listen and then and you put yourself in their shoes and see through their eyes before you start helping them solve the problem for themselves. Fantastic. You remind me so much of Brene Brown when you speak of empathy. That is, that is good stuff. She's an incredible lady. Thank you for yeah. the comparison. Yeah. <laughs> Look, in all of these things, there's nothing particularly original in anything that these great writers write about. They just have a really great way of phrasing it and architecting it so people go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I get it. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what we all aspire to, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, well done for your architecture. The service framework works really, really well. Well, how can we learn more? How can we learn more? I guess there's a couple of ways. If people are interested in learning a little bit more about what what we do, we've got a really cool website, jimmyburrows.com. Burroughs is B-U-R-R-O-U-G-H-E-S. A little bit complicated to spell, and I'm sure it'll be in the show notes somewhere. Also extremely active on LinkedIn, both posting and commenting. So Jimmy Burroughs there and Instagram, Jimmy B Leadership. If anybody is interested in going a little bit deeper and they want to learn more, we do actually have a book coming out pretty soon and a podcast being released reasonably soon too, both in the next six weeks. 
So I will provide links for how people can listen to that podcast. And uh, also we're offering the first chapter of the book that we're sharing, which is all around essentially a really practical playbook for leaders to be able to build a high performance culture. And we're offering that up for, for people to download for free. Fantastic. That is all good stuff. Good, good stuff. Outstanding. Thank you, Jimmy. Well, I have a few lightning round questions for you. This is, this, is the part, this is the part of the show where folks get a chance to learn a little bit more about you. Nothing too personal, nothing, nothing embarrassing. The first question is, if you could interview anyone, if you could sit in my chair and interview anyone, who would it be and why? Oh, that's a great question. I think, I, 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 and I thought about this when you, are, when you kind of primed me earlier, there's two people I would want to contrast in an interview. So like, if it, can I allow, am I allowed a panel interview? I'd love, to, I'd love to invite Barack Obama and Winston Churchill to be on a stage together because they're two leaders from two different points in history who've both had to overcome immense challenges in their own contexts. You know, first black president of the United States, what an, what an incredible achievement. And he's an incredible man, very articulate, very smart. Winston Churchill, English aristocrat, led the UK through World War II. You know, both iconic leaders of their generation, but I would love to pick their brains on their views and visions of leadership in contrast to each other and see where the common ground was versus where the divergence of opinion was. I think that would be a really interesting conversation over, over dinner somewhere. Oh, I agree. That would be fascinating. I've never heard anybody make that comparison before, certainly not on this show, but I don't think I've ever heard that before. So that, that would be very interesting. If you, uh, if you manage to arrange that dinner, can I come? Sure. I mean, uh, the, 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 certainly the Winston Churchill one might be a little bit more challenging to rumble up. <laughs> Unless we have some sort of exorcist or something in the room with exactly. us or, or medium. Oh, but in all honesty, you know, I've, I've, I have so much respect for, this isn't about getting political, but I have so much respect for people who can achieve the office of the President of the United States and do good with it or achieve any leadership role and do good with it. And, you know, President of the United States is clearly, a, you know, a, an immense accolade of achievement in itself. But just to just to be a leader of that many people and to influence the lives of that many people, it, what, a, what a privilege, what an honor, but also what an opportunity to do something really, really incredible and moving the world. Mm. And, and that's what I'm all about. I'm on a mission to change the way the world operates in leadership genuinely. And I'm always looking for people who are doing the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. My next question is, what's your favorite vacation spot and why? And you may have already touched on this one. Yeah. So there's, again, I can never answer with one. It's my, the way my brain works. I have the luxury and the, I guess, the absolute privilege to live in Los Cabos in Mexico. So it's the place where most Americans save to come on holiday for their one week of vacation. I get 52 weeks a year here, which is, is, is truly a blessing. 360 days of sunshine living by the beach. And when I grew up as a kid, I grew up as far away as you can get from the beach in the UK. So I always dreamed of like being able to walk out onto the sand every morning. And I do, I literally walk my dog on the beach every morning. The place I want to go, my dream vacation spot is a little island in Indonesia called Raja Ampat, which is, is like the next scuba diving Mecca. So that is high on my list to visit at Raja Ampat. Ooh, 
I could see us traveling together to scuba spots. I, yeah, I, I think we're going to be like nerding out on 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 gas mixes and and the and leadership stuff. Like it's going to be exactly. Going to be we're going to be sitting on a boat, <laughs> comparing regulators and talking about gas mixes, and then also talking about Brene Brown and yep. and uh, Winston Churchill and <laughs> for sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, last question for you: What brings you the most joy in your life? What brings me the most joy in my life? I'm going to say two things again. Number one, I spent many, many, many years of my life feeling a sense of imposter syndrome. You know, am I good enough? Am I going to get found out? Is somebody going to suddenly call me out on this? And I realized about about a year and a half, two years ago that I was enough and I did have value to offer. And my secret sauce, my magic that I, I bring to the world is magic because it's mine. And so I think the most joy I got in life from a personal perspective was accepting myself for who I am and just kind of accepting that some people aren't going to like that, but actually I'm a pretty cool person if I think about it logically. And I've got lots of pieces of evidence that prove that and very few pieces of evidence that prove I'm a failure and a nerd and, and you know, not up to the job. So I think anybody who else is looking for joy, it starts inside first. The other piece of joy that I have is, is my family, you know, my partner, my dog, yeah she's the most supportive incredible woman who is my biggest cheerleader my toughest coach my harshest critic and and absolutely you know i couldn't do what i do without her and her support and obviously having a puppy around is 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 super fun so i think it's those two things you know it's really accepting myself and and aligning that with an incredible partner who's a force of nature oh i completely agree my wife erin is fantastic and and gives me a lot of leash and sometimes that that is is that to hang yourself with? Well, or? <laughs> I was just gonna say. <laughs> so, sometimes she'll say, "Okay, run, go with it," and then I have to come back with her with the results, and it's like, "Well, it wasn't what we were hoping for." Yeah. Uh, and then she's she's very analytical, and okay, what are we gonna do about it? And I really appreciate her. I would not be in this position without without Aaron. So, yeah, can totally relate to having a good Amazing. partner. And then the imposter syndrome thing. Holy cow! I worked at Apple for three years. So I was in wow. Cupertino in headquarters working for the biggest company in the world at the time. And, you know, just around every corner was somebody who was exponentially smarter than me and just a better human being than me. And that took, that took a long time to get over. It's yeah, it's hard when you work in a place like that because everybody is so, so smart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it is, I mean, we could have another whole conversation on this, but the short version is nobody is better at being you than you. And so as long as you just own being you, you're the world's number one expert in that. And the value you bring is you being you. And so we could, we could, I could talk for hours on imposter syndrome. I'm fascinated by the topic and, and, I, and I consult on it a lot. It's one of the key contributors to burnout. But it's, I think when we go into an office or an environment where people are exponentially smarter than us, that makes us feel less. But actually, they're also wrangling with things and they're still trying to adult. They're still trying to work it out as well. It's just that they're, being them and you need to start focusing on being you. Reminds me of something that a shoe salesman told me in San Francisco's financial district when I first started working. So I was fresh out of college in 1992 and bought my first pair of good work shoes. Mm -hmm. And I was agonizing over the style and the fit and all of that. And this very wise man told me, don't worry so much about your shoes. Make sure you get something that's comfortable and fits you because everybody else is too too busy worrying about their shoes to look at your shoes. Mm-hmm. 
So, you know, just relax and you do you and, and you'll be fine sort of a thing. I love that. I love yeah. that. That's so great. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I would love to catch up with that guy because he was just full of, of very practical wisdom. And, you know, he, like I showed up, I was 22, you know, so I was obviously very young and he was, he was probably in his, I'm going to say he was in his early fifties, but he just had wisdom and shared it with me while he was selling me shoes or shirts or whatever. And yeah, yeah, I, I you know, it's interesting who will touch your life. Having those, those, what I would call the informal mo- mentoring moments from, yeah, the, the shoe salesman, the hot dog cart guy, the whoever, and you like, they stick with you, right? For life. I love that. I love that. <laughs> yeah, they do. Well, Jimmy, thank you so much. I really enjoyed chatting with you. I love that we have so much in common. How can people find you? Let's just reinforce that. Sure. JimmyBurrows.com website, uh, Jimmy Burrows on uh, LinkedIn or Jimmy B Leadership on Instagram. All right. Well, thanks for listening. Please subscribe, comment, share, and connect with me on LinkedIn. We'll catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Management Development Unlocked. Want more? Get a ton of insider tips and tools at gerardtrainingsolutions.com.